The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting again with John Michael Greer. You may remember him from episodes 44, 59, and 90, because John is the most frequently reappearing guest on the Numinous podcast. It's because his knowledge is so vast, his interests so varied, and his research so deep. It's fair to say that John is a polymath. He's basically a genius in several categories. Today, we're going to talk about one of his recent books. And by the way, he's written over 45 books, if you include the anthologies, both fiction and nonfiction. So yeah, polymath. I found this book particularly fascinating. It's called Secrets of the Temple, Earth Energies, Sacred Geometry, and the Lost Keys of Freemasonry. John, let's start with you telling us what identities do you lead with. Um, I, I well, I think probably the place to the, the place to start that with that would be to say we all know about computer geeks. There are non-computer geeks. I'm one of them. There are people who just like getting into really obscure corners of knowledge and reading old books that nobody's opened for, for 57 years, and sometimes finding things that are really interesting in them. And that's that's really, I think, the identity that I that I tend to embrace. One way of talking about it is that I'm an intellectual dumpster diver. <laughs> I go through the I go through the dumpsters in the back alleys of the Western mind, pull out stuff, say, "Wow, this hasn't even been touched," and go and make off with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, yes. You. It, I would say more generously that you write the Coles notes of the most arcane texts of the world <laughs> and put them out in book form for us. So I have been reading The Secret of the Temple mm-hmm. and I've gone back over it a few times. Um, actually, it has a subtitle. Would you be so kind as to uh, state the whole title? The subtitle is Earth Energies, Sacred Geometry and the Lost Keys of Freemasonry. Okay, so I mean, it's such an important subtitle because it's bringing together so many things. Now, this was a book I remember I was, you know, on a ferry boat with my husband where I kept going, huh, wow, huh. And I had my little post it arrow markers. In, and so it's, it's riddled with all, I, I mean, you, you've really condensed thousands of years of yeah arcane knowledge into this little handbook so so it's a very quick way for people to come up to speed i would like to dive right in to my, i'm going to call it my favorite chapter chapter 4 you call it the changing of the gods mm-hmm. let's frame this conversation about this book with you describing what was the historical transformation that occurred about 2,500 years ago that you called the changing of the gods? Okay. What happened about 2,500 years ago is that in large parts of the old world, people stopped worshiping the old gods of nature and started worshiping dead human beings instead. Okay. That, that's a really... <laughs> Sounds really w- pathetic when you put it that way, John. It does. I know. <laughs> um, the thing is, it... It, it was a really weird event before then. And in large parts of the world, 
ever since, and really the kind of human normal attitude toward religion, the one that you find everywhere outside of the areas that were affected by this particular event, is, you know, is, you know, religion is how we relate to nature. Religion is how we relate to the sky, how we relate to the earth, how we relate to the waters and the winds, how we relate to vegetation. That's, that's what religion is. The, the term, quote, pagan, unquote, has been used for that fairly often, although it's been kind of appropriated and reused in various not always helpful ways. But just the idea that, that religion is about our relationship with nature and with the spiritual dimensions of nature. The idea is that the natural world is full of spirituality. It's not fallen. It's not debased. It's not merely material. It's, 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 where, it's a manifestation of divine power. The sun and the moon, the winds, the waters, all of these are are things that express the presence of the gods and the goddesses. That's normal. That's normal human religion. Then starting about 2,500 years ago, you start getting prophets. You start getting people who become convinced, no, no, that's all wrong. What you should be doing is believing me. And what I have to say is that there's a, there is a, well, in the Western half of the old world, there's this one real God, okay, who is none of these gods of nature. And uh, he's mostly concerned with telling you what to do in your private life. Mm-hmm. especially in bed. <laughs> okay. And, and um, so that's where we get scriptures and that's mm. where we get monotheism and that's where we get um, religion turned into moral policing. You know, you're doing something evil. Okay. Huh? Mm-hmm. And you don't find this in the older religions. It's very much something that started you know, at a certain point in history, and there were complex reasons why, and which which I discussed in the book, why it took off and why it why it developed the way. And I'm still working on that. There's there are further aspects of that that I think really badly need further explanation. But that's that that's a long term project of mine. But so you have the coming of these these anti natural religions, the religions that that insist that. Religion should not be about how we relate to nature. It's about bailing out of the world into some imaginary other world on the far side of death. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're going to die and then everything's going to be wonderful. Now, this attitude, whatever can be said about this attitude, it is not a good way to build an an environmentally stable society. Mm -hmm. And, um, Len White Jr., one of the great ecological historians of, of a couple of generations ago, wrote a, an essay called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, where he argued that this change is how we backed ourselves into the corner that we're in now. Because mm-hmm. everybody was so focused on being, you know, salvation and on uh, what their next door neighbors were doing in bed and on all the other things that have really been the focus of prophetic religion in the Western world. And stopped and, and dropped completely the idea that good relations with nature actually matter. Mm-hmm. And so because we stopped seeing nature as sacred, we stopped seeing natural things as manifestations of the gods and goddesses, they became resources to be exploited. And again, we, we now see where that leads us. Whether we, you know, what exactly what, what exactly will be the long-term judgment humans pass on that when they're looking back at it over you know 10,000 years from now we'll see but from where i sit right now it looked like my idea is the changing of the gods is a very bad idea uh-huh well and it's so interesting cuz you started by describing 
these more natural religions. And of course, in my mind, there's such cognitive dissonance because I don't think of that as religion. And then when you're talking about the anti-natural religions, that's what, you know, and so I think of exactly. you know, many of my listeners would say, oh no, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Actually, most, <laughs> most of your listeners are probably religious in the way that an ancient Greek or an ancient Egyptian or anybody else before the chain, this, this religious revolution would have treated it totally natural. Oh yeah, you're a perfectly religious right. person. You have respect uh -huh. for nature, you have respect for spiritual beings, you try to live in harmony with your society and with the world. That's religion. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what's, what's all this business about getting bent out of shape about, you know, again, what your neighbor's doing in their bedroom? <laughs> mm, yes, and so, so yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, so, so in fact, the, the problem is simply that, um, that so few people have really had any contact with the surviving natural religions. They, they are mm -hmm. still around. Um, right. Those I, I, I've had the, I had the opportunity partly by, by growing up in a multi-ethnic family. My stepmother's Japanese. And mm. so I grew up with some elements of Shinto, which is the traditional Japanese natural religion. Mm -hmm. And then later, later on, um, when I was living in Seattle, there's actually a Shinto temple up north, or shrine, I think is the technical term, just north of Seattle. And so I visited there quite frequently and, and attended ceremonies, made offerings and things. And it was really profoundly meaningful to me because it was, there, there was something right in that, something that made sense in that, that I did not find in the mainstream, the sort of mainstream prophetic religions that are what everyone thinks of as religion. So that, mm -hmm. that, fed, into, that fed into my involvement in the, the particular spiritual path that I follow these days. But, but it also helped feed into this book because I wanted to talk in part about what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because at some point we went from this nature-based religion to having things like temples. And so you spend a lot of the book talking about how temples are a form of technology. Can mm -hmm. you unpack that a little bit? Sure. Now the temples actually, there were temples in the, with, in the, old, um, in the old nature religions. Mm. But the, there, was, there was something going on with those temples that most people don't get. And, and it's largely, I think, because there's that particular notion of religion that everyone has these days, that it's, it's all about, you know, um, believing in scriptures and, and making moral judgments on people and um, hoping to go somewhere else when you're dead. Um, mm -hmm. The temples in the, old, in the old world, in the ancient world, were held to be, among other things, centers of fertility. And this was something that I, I ran. I actually ran across it originally doing research on on a completely different subject. I was looking into some of the details with legends around the Holy Grail and legends around the Knights Templar and the Temple of Solomon and so on. And in the process, I noticed there's all these references to stuff having to do with agricultural fertility. I'm going, what? Mm. So I started studying that. And in fact, in the ancient world, the idea was you put in a temple and all the crops start growing better. This is amazing. I know. <laughs> and that, was, that was where I just went, hold it. And so, you know, yeah. you, you, you run across it once and it's okay. Yeah, you know, well, the gods are pleased. Okay. But you run into mm -hmm. it dozens of times in many different parts of the world and you start scratching your head and going, okay, something's going on here. And so what I ended up, what I ended up figuring out, and this is the, the core thesis of The Secret of the Temple, is that... Um, People in the ancient world, over a period of thousands of years by trial and error, discovered that certain kinds of architectural forms, certain kinds of practices done in them, concentrate natural energies in ways that benefit 
agricultural fertility that benefit that makes that make the crops grow better that make trees grow better and this is that, amazing also yeah. i just want to say because Go when ahead. you think of fertility say goddesses or mm -hmm. you're, you know when you think about some of the art and imagery in temples mm -hmm. anybody who's done any kind of travel or even travel through books or the internet looking at these images and you're thinking and so i automatically always think in my mind oh fertility like um ensuring futurity for your ancestral line. Mm -hmm. I never really thought that much about that being a symbol for or being correlated mm -hmm. with agricultural fertility, which mm -hmm. of course would have been very imminently important for yeah, people. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like, do you want to survive? Yeah. But, but the thing is, if you th think of, think of the very famous statue of the goddess Diana at a feast. everyone's seen it. She's the one who has dozens of breasts. Mm -hmm. Okay, her skirt. If you if you get up close to or, or zoom into the picture, you'll find her skirt has all these little pictures on them, and they're pictures of every kind of living thing. Hmm. And the breasts are similarly a symbol of nourishment. Mm -hmm. She's the one who nourishes. She's the goddess yeah. of every kind of fertility, which includes yeah. you know fertility of human beings at a time when mm -hmm. um, disease was a major problem. Um, epidemics were common. Um, child mortality, of course, was very common because there, there were a lot of things about sanitation that nobody figured out yet. And so, yeah, you needed, you needed human fertility as well, but you also needed agricultural fertility. And mm -hmm. so you have goddesses like Demeter, the Greek earth goddess, who is very much, she is the goddess of grain. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, um, there were all of these rituals and practices that, that people did in ancient Greece at the temples of Demeter and at shrines at Demeter, which are all over the place. And, and the which had to, mysteries. Yeah, the Eleusinian, that's a very important point because that was all about Demeter and Persephone. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, it's about um, farming because the seed, okay, the grain goes into the soil, it descends into the underworld, and then it rises again right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then it descends again and it rises again, just like Persephone does. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, the idea was that, that this cycle of nature was, remember the idea of, in the, in the, in the older idea of religion, the idea is that the cycles of nature express the presence of the gods and goddesses. They're not, they're not apart mm -hmm. from, from the spiritual, the the material and spiritual are not two separate things. The material expresses the spiritual. And so when we watch the cycle of the seasons, when we watch, you know, the seed going into the ground and rising again, we see our own cycle of descent and ascent of, of, of life and death and birth and rebirth. Mm -hmm. And so, and so that was, all of that was tied into the Eleusinian mysteries. It was tied into the many other mysteries. Of course, there were, there were all kinds of mystery cults around that. That's actually something I'm researching now for an upcoming book. But mm -hmm. that's another story. So, why was the Temple of Solomon, though? We talk about you talk mm -hmm. about the Temple of Solomon in particular. Actually, I, I do want to sort of frame the book. You do a mm -hmm. wonderful overview of um, not just old world and and uh, old world cultures, but also um, the new world. Mm -hmm. You know, and you talk about how this kind of shows up in different continents and in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I'm. I want to focus on why was the Temple of Solomon so important and influential, and then why did the Freemasons revere that particular temple okay. as opposed to some other? And you might need to talk just a little bit about who are the Freemasons there. Okay, yeah. Well, for granted, everybody knows. <laughs> gotcha. Well, no, not everyone knows. Now, now, a full disclosure here, I am a Freemason. Um, I'm a 32nd degree Freemason. I have been through a whole series of um, initiation rituals conferred by elderly guys in funny costumes. 
<laughs> okay. Got it. Okay. Um, you poured I have, a lot of salt on I, things. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't possibly. Could say. I, yeah, I couldn't possibly say that. I do have a very large collection of funny hats. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. it's a very important thing here. But um, it's it's a running joke among some of the younger Freemasons. Yeah, we're just in it for the funny hats. <laughs> but so basically, the, the thing about the Temple of Solomon. Remember that after after Christianity spread through the Western world. The idea was that all these pagan temples are evil. They're they're like they were created by the devil and all all that kind of nonsense. The one temple, the one old temple you could talk about and everyone go, oh yes, that was a temple to our god. Was well, the Temple of Solomon hmm. because of the way that the Christians um, kind of uh, brought a bootleg edition of the Jewish scriptures as hmm. as the Old Testament. Okay, right. they kind of co-opted Jewish history into their own history. So the Temple of Solomon, that's a good temple. And okay. so if you wanted to talk about temples, you had to talk about the Temple of Solomon. Mm. Okay, that was the one that you could do. And since the Temple of Solomon had these same properties, if you read in the Talmud, which is the, the, the great Jewish collection of, of lore and tradition, if you read in the Talmud about the Temple of Solomon, you find all kinds of references to how it caused agricultural fertility in the land around it. That was wow. one of the places where I first really got onto the trail that I ended up tracing in this book. Mm -hmm. And so the Freemasons, now the Freemasons, there's a long, complex history in the Freemasons. Nowadays, the Freemasons are a men's club that does a lot of charities. Mm -hmm. That's basically, you know, it has uh, old, some very old initiation rituals that nobody really understands anymore. It has um, funny hats. It has, <laughs> um, it raises a phenomenal amount of money every year to put into various, uh, various charitable projects of, of you know, um, various worthy kinds. Um, it gives, it gives guys a place to go once a week to get out of the house and um, it gives their wives uh, an opportunity to get her to, to spend some time without their husbands around. Um, and generally speaking, it is, you know, it's just, that's what it is now. And that's what it's been for, for a couple of hundred years. You go back further, and it used to be um, a trade guild of stonemasons. It used to mm -hmm. be the, the guys who, ultimately, the guys who built the cathedrals mm -hmm. belonged to an organization that ended up, over time, becoming first a guild and then modern Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. And as you get back in the Middle Ages, you start getting these very odd rumors and these very odd, odd traces of, of information that was passed on, and something I talk about in my book, that mm -hmm. suggest that the Knights Templar connecting to there somehow. My theory, and this is this is based on, on a fair amount of evidence, is that when, now the Knights Templar, so there's been a lot of talk about them. They were a they were a, a well they were like they were like they were like Christian Shaolin monks. Okay, they were monks and warriors at the same time. They mm -hmm. went to the Holy Land to get to get involved in the Crusades, and while they were there, they apparently learned a lot of things that were not particularly orthodox. <laughs> and so they, when the Crusades, when, when the Crusades were over, and the, uh, the European foothold in the Holy Land was lost, um, and the Templars were all were all in Europe again, um, that's when charges of heresy started being brooded about. And in 1307, they were basically rounded up, mm -hmm. and other than you know some escaped. Um, but in most of Europe, they were rounded up, and a certain number were burnt at the stake, and a certain number ended up spending the rest of their lives in monasteries and things like that. Mm -hmm. And a certain number fled to Scotland, which was in the middle of a civil war at that time and was um, for complex religious reasons under what was called interdict, which meant that there were no church services legally allowed anywhere in the kingdom by, by order of the Pope. And long, complex story. The, the Templars ended up 
settling down there and were not being burned at the stake or being forced into monasteries or what have you. And some of them apparently ended up, because they built castles, okay? That was mm-hmm. one of the things the order did. Some of them apparently ended up becoming part of the stonemason scene there. They, they, needed, a, they needed a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. so, and so some of their secrets ended up passing on into the Freemasons. It's a long, complex, ramified story. And things like this happen in history, okay? Mm-hmm. So, but what happened was, and this is where it gets really interesting, the Templars, the, in, when, during the Crusades, the Templars' headquarters was on the site of King Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That's why they were, they were the Templars, the Knights of the Temple. Mm-hmm. And they did excavations in the hill underneath the temple. What they found there, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. What else might they have been up to? Nobody knows. They kept their mouths good and shut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are just enough traces in the material in Freemasonry that suggests that at some point, the medieval um, stonemasons guilds knew how to do this trick with temple architecture to get the fertility mm-hmm. reaction. That, right. was, that was the original secret of a master mason. Now, mm-hmm. here's something most people don't know about Freemasonry. Um, and it's, it's, not, you know, it's something you can find quite readily if you want to do some research online, so I'm not giving away any secrets. The, the passwords and, and secret signs and things and so on that we use, they are not the original ones and we know it. Mm-hmm. Everyone, when you become a master mason, you're told these are the substitute words. Mm-hmm. until the true secrets of a master mason will be found. Hmm. And that's been the case since as far back as we have records in Freemasonry. So mm-hmm. what, what were the original secrets? My theory, as I argue in this book, is that the original secrets centered around this secret technology of agricultural fertility that was built into temples, that was built into medieval churches in many cases, and then mm-hmm. was lost at the time of the Reformation. Long, complex story. But, but so that was the secret of the temple. That was the original Master Mason secret. It was it's the really secret amazing of the in Templar. the book. Uh-huh. In, in the book, what's so amazing is actually you do start to feel kind of like you're on a grail quest. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're kind of like, and then this happens, and then this happens, and could it be? It's, it's, it's very, it's like your own kind of, I'm, I'm not going to use the very popular Tom Hanks uh, popularized book that I'm, I'm thinking yeah, you, of it. You, can, you can if you want. Yeah, okay, I don't want to offend you, but it reminded me of the Da Vinci Code, where you're like, oh, oh my gosh. It's you're not the only person. The actual to, secret is. Okay. Yeah, you're not the only person to draw that thing. The thing is, when I was doing the research for this, and the research for this book has actually extended over about 15 years, mm. it was like being on a grail quest. It was like, you know, first getting this, hold it, what's going Something very funny is going on here, and I go further, and I go further, and this turns up, and that turns up, and it just, one thing led to another, and there, then eventually, it was about, about four years ago mm. that I was looking at some material in, um, some material related to the Temple of Solomon, and that's when the pieces fell together, and I go, Holy crap. Holy crap. Yeah. Exactly. You you do a whole section too on the beautiful um, earthen mounds, Mm -hmm. uh, the Neolithic mounds sort of throughout Mm -hmm. the British Isles. And then you transport us to the new world and talk about um, the Mesoamerican mounds, Mm -hmm. not pyramids. How do I say the word? Ziggurats. They look exactly like the ziggurats in Babylonia and they serve the same purpose. In fact, to this day, um, 
Native, the native peoples in the Yucatan use some of the old pyramids. What they'll do is they'll take the this, this, this seed corn before they plant their corn. They'll take all the seed stock up to the top of the pyramid and leave it there for a while. Um, there's, I, let's see, there have been several different researchers who found there are, there's a concentration of magnetic force and of, electri of, of electricity at the top there that actually affects the seeds in ways that make them germinate better and grow more, more quickly. It, it, so this, again, this is mind one, blown. It's blowing mind blowing. My mind. <laughs> exactly. And here's the, but here's the thing. Um, people in the ancient world didn't have the fancy technology we have now, but they were not stupid. They paid mm -hmm. very close attention. They had to pay close attention. I mean, how many of us could actually survive in, mm -hmm. in a Neolithic setting for very long? We wouldn't know anything. And, you know, all the people that surround, all the people, you know, if we, if we met the Neolithic people, they took us in here, have something to eat. Um, you know, they, they'd have to teach us such very simple things as how to gather wild foods, what kind of wood is good for what purpose, all these perfectly normal things that everyone knew back then. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were just paying attention to different things. We're paying attention to video games. They're paying attention to nature. I happen to think they have the right idea. Yeah. Well, and... I, I like that you brought us here because in the book, something that really leapt out at me as, you know, you have these sort of experiences of coherence. When you mm -hmm. read something, this happened for me. You noted in the book that incense, chanting, bread, and blood taboos are elements common to temple traditions, like across cultures. And so, you know, that really, you know, that biological sense of rightness and resonance mm -hmm. just jumped out. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yes, that's so ancient and, and, and very common. And I'm curious, what's your take on that? Why are those particulars important? Like, what do you think they represent to humans across time and geography? You see, I don't think it's a matter of what they represent. Mm. I don't think it's a matter of symbolism. I think the symbolism is there because these things work with the technology. It's like, <laughs> if you can imagine, uh, let, let's imagine that people forgot about electricity. Okay, there's some kind of, some kind of apocalyptic thing happens. Nobody remembers ele that electricity works anymore. And we find, you know, thousands of years from now, we're exploring the ruins of an ancient city. And we find all of these odd little um, plug-in things in the walls. Okay. <laughs> and they all have these two vertical lines and this one little round line. And there's <laughs> two of them, one above the other. And people get all, they must be religious symbols. And we can learn about the ancient religion from this because we have this duality and the da 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 da. Okay, yeah, maybe so, but what if that's what you need to do to get the current to flow? Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is going on here. These particular things ended up becoming culturally important because they were important to the temple technology. Because if you use incense, you get certain effects, um, as, yeah. as I argue in my book, relating to that part of the electromagnetic spectrum right where microwaves blend in infrared. You can generate those frequencies, and plants and insects both interact with those frequencies. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're doing things, you, the thing with bread, how this works, I don't know. It requires it, much experimentation is needed, and uh, good luck getting a grant. But all over the world, people will take an object of whatever the local grain is, whether it's wheat, whether it's rice, whether it's corn, they'll put it in a sacred space and leave it there for a period and do some ritual and take it out and eat it and get the spiritual rush from it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of symbolism in that, but maybe there's also something that's not symbolic in that. And that's what I'm suggesting, that in mm -hmm. fact, in some way, the grain, grain products are influenced by 
the what I call the temple effect. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're influenced by that technology in ways where you you ingest that and it affects you. It influences your state of consciousness. Yeah. And so, and, and with with every with all of these various taboos everywhere around the world, practically before people go into a sacred place, they wash their hands, mm-hmm. or they 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 dip their hand into some water. And, and to this day, in a Catholic in a, in a traditional Catholic church, you go to the vestibule, you go to the little thing of holy water, you 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 know you draw you cross yourself with the holy water. Okay. Mm-hmm. In a Greek temple three thousand years ago, you do almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. In a Shinto shrine, to this day, you wash your hands, you wash your mouth before you at a, at a, at a, 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 a thing of running water right outside the, the shrine. Then you go into the shrine. Everybody does it. Why? Probably because it does something that's important to the effect. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, I mean, it's, it's great that so many people are, are paying attention to symbolism. That's one of the great gifts that Carl Jung actually gave the modern world by really pointing up to us, there is this whole realm of symbolic meaning in uh, myths, in legends, in rituals, and so on, and we need to pay attention to it. And that's, that's of course, very important. But it's not all symbolism. There can be other things going on, like, you know, as in my plug-in example, sometimes the two vertical lines and the one circular, the two vertical gaps and the one circular gap may be there because that's where you put the plug-in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because that's where the power is. Oh, because I love that's that. where the power is. <laughs> that's great. So can you, I, I'd like to end on you telling us also, there's a, there's a section where you talk about two shapes of time. Mm-hmm. And I sort of felt like that could be a whole, maybe like a, a, a little booklet, like a, a small book just about the two shapes of time. Because on the one hand, it intrigued me mm-hmm. from from kind of on the mental level, but also mm. I felt like, oh, this could also be a bedtime story somehow. I feel like these are important <laughs> stories to tell people, uh, just, mm-hmm. just to sort of think about how we think about something like how we time. Think, yeah, how, how do we yeah. think about time? Because that's the thing, people, the, and the thing that makes stories like this difficult is that very often pe- people don't even notice that there's more than one sh- possible shape of time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we, we tend to think in the modern world, in the modern world, we have this notion that the shape of time is progress, okay? That there's this kind of hardwired structure of time that time always goes from the worst to the better. We're on our way from the caves to the stars. That's just the way thing is. Something that's new has to be better than whatever it replaces. Now, in fact, that's nonsense. And increasingly, it's become very difficult nonsense for people to maintain because, you know, what's new may be worse these days. I mean, I think it was Calvin Trillin, the essayist, who commented a little while ago that um, the, the scariest words in the English language right now are software upgrade. <laughs> because yes. you know that when your software upgrades, it's going to have more problems and fewer useful features than it previously did. Uh-huh. But it's progress. Okay. So you really, progress has become a religion. People think about progress in the modern world the way um, uh, medieval peasants thought about, thought about Jesus. You know, progress is going to save us. Progress is, it's omnipotent, it's omniscient, it's always benevolent, it loves us. It's going to bring us the, the, the perfect heaven of jetpacks and domed cities someday soon. Mm-hmm. So it fills a religious role. Now, this is the thing 
this is the way we habitually think about time, and it, 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 there are times when it's relevant. There are times when things do progress. When you go back into um, other cultures, when you look at, a, at older periods of time, you find that that's not the way people in the past, and, and even in other cultures today, think about time. One one way that many people think about time, and, and you'll find this actually nowadays in, in many religious circles, is about decline. You know, there's golden age in the past, and everything has been sliding downhill since then. Mm. Now, in the modern world, you still get that. If you ever have a chance to sit down with an old-time communist, oh, classic, you know, classic true believer in communism, you'll hear about the age, you know, primitive communism when everyone lived together in peace and harmony and how private property followed and we ended up descending and now we're in the final stages of capitalism and everything's been horrible and then the revolution will come and the world will be perfect again, okay? Mm. And you know that there's this whole sort of descent. Mm -hmm. It's actually the same thing you'll find from, from um, if you sit down with an old-fashioned fundamentalist, because then there was Eden, where everyone, you know, everyone lived together in happiness. Then the the apple, original sin, and you had all these things. And now we're in the last stages before the second coming, when everything will be made wonderful again. It's mm. the same shape of time, mm -hmm. and so you've got you've got these two sort of competing notions, where there's the shape of decline followed by an apocalyptic transformation, or you have the upward one of progress toward you know, toward some Star Trek future or other. And yet there are others still, because many, many people around the world believe that the time is a circle, that there are mm -hmm. times of progress and of regress, of rise and of fall, just as in a human life. You know, we grow and then we grow old and we come around the circle again. In many traditions, of course, reincarnation is, is understood as that's what happens next. That's what keeps the circle turning. Mm. On a broader level, we see that civilizations rise and then they fall and the new civilizations rise on their ruins. Mm. And so there are actually, I, when I wrote that, that, that section, I was talking about just two shapes of time, but there are many shapes of time. Mm. And one of the things that I think we need, that it would be very useful for people to do nowadays is stop taking the shape of time for granted. Stop mm. assuming that time has to follow this particular shape. Um, if I may, if I may venture on a politically loaded example, sure. a lot of the reason that people, that so many people melted down so comprehensively when Donald Trump was elected last year, you know, that's not supposed to happen. Well, why is mm. that? Well, well, progress. Mm. The idea was that things should keep on getting better, and the next step of progress was, of course, a woman president. Maybe history is not listening. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you need to be aware that there are cycles in things. Things go up and down. There are changes. And the world is not going to get better by itself. If we want a better world, we need to actually lean into it and make it happen. Mm -hmm. And I think too many people, too many people in 2016 just kind of sat back and said, oh, well, you know, um, you know, yes, we're going to have a woman president now. It'll be wonderful. And then found out that someone else had been doing all the hard work and it wasn't who they wanted. Mm-hmm. So in, as we're shifting, those of us who have recognized, oh, I've been oriented towards linear time. I want mm -hmm. to move towards cyclical time. Mm -hmm. And I need to disentangle from this entitlement, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
I know for me, I'll speak for myself. There's grief around that. Even though I know I want to move into the cyclical understanding and and step into the circle, there's grief letting go of the world we were promised, you know, or marketed to. And there's grief in needing to step into, oh, this isn't ever going to stop. I'm always going to come back around to the cycle where grief Mm -hmm. is part. I'm going to end up in that part of the spiral. Yeah. So I'm curious how you personally um, process and manage when you get to the grief part. Well, to begin with, it's a lot easier when you realize that it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a lot easier when you realize that it's not some kind of outside thing that's sort of shockingly elbowing its way into your world. Mm-hmm. It's normal. It's natural. You know, mm-hmm. we all experience it we we're let's let's if i may be blunt and bring up the obvious thing we all of us are going to die Mm -hmm. we those of us who live long enough will all get old we will all uh, people that we care about will die that's that's in the world that's part of what the world is about and if we if we think about that and accept that in advance if we let that be part of our world it's a lot easier to grieve for it and other than that, um, what I typically, you know, in my case, it's very much a matter of, okay, I am, I am in the place of grief now. That's, that's mm. where I'm, you know, that's where I am at at this moment. And that doesn't need to shape everything about me, but it's simply a reality that I accept. I let myself grieve. Mm. And just let yourself feel what you're feeling. Don't, for heaven's sake, convince yourself, well, I'm having a negative thought. There was a book published <laughs> some years ago, You Cannot Afford the Luxury of a Negative Thought. That, that kind of thinking harms people. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. If, if you're feeling bad, if you're feeling grief, if you're feeling fear, if you're feeling rage, um, you need to accept that you're feeling it. And you need mm-hmm. to not try to hide from it or run away from it. You need to just, just sit with it, you know, mm-hmm. um, make a place for it on the couch next to you mm-hmm. and, you know, let it talk to you. It may have a message mm-hmm. that you need to hear. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of the approach that I have. Just make, make room for your feelings, make room for including the difficult ones, accept the fact that there they are. They're not, they're not going to go away, but if you treat them well, they, they tend to be, like most things, they tend to be better behaved. That's right. Well, and there seems to be, you know, let's draw the parallel. There's, there are technologies, like the temple. Mm-hmm. You know, you kept saying, make, I'm in the place of grief or I'm going to make a place here. It's like you, you tend to have, uh, at least, I don't know, in this conversation, I'm noticing a pattern of being place-based and that something maybe magical can happen if oh, you yeah. say the place for my grief and I'm going to occupy this place. And then I bet there are technologies that will work for you mm-hmm. to help, you know, harness whatever the potential um, momentum that's going to take you to the place beyond grief. Yeah. I, maybe I'm just embellishing, but I, but no, no, that, no, I think, like no you're, you're, you're quite right. <laughs> One of the things that, that typically happened in the, in the sort of seasonal cycle in the old nature religions, um, when when you had the, the ceremony where the, the deity who represented the grain, you know, went, died and went to the underworld, and it could be any deity, okay? It mm-hmm. might be Attis or it might be Persephone or it might be whoever. Um, there was a part of the, the, the ritual that went along with that, of that, of that holiday, was grieving. Mm-hmm. You'd hear people crying for the, for the dead god. 
And they were crying for themselves too. They were crying. For, it was a way that you could express your own grief and just be with grief for a while. Let that be a part, knowing that the God of the goddess is going to pop up out of the soil again. Mm-hmm. But you can let yourself grieve for it while it, ha- you know, while, you know, when, um, I, I don't mean to bring in an, unpo- an unpleasant pop culture reference, but, you know, knowing that winter is coming, but knowing <laughs> that spring is on the other side. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, you know, that's a really neat um, thought, though, as you were saying that, um, you know, this is the time when we grieve. Sometimes I find I can get so functional, like I have mm-hmm. so many responsibilities, but knowing that I have an appointment or knowing that there's an observance at some kind of ritual on the calendar means I can carry my grief until I can get to the place where I can express my grief. So it's kind of both, right? It's like being in the Greek place and getting to spring, but sometimes you're in summer and you can't wait to get to the place where you can just <laughs> let loose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciated the book Secret of the Temple. I learned so much about history and temple technology and Mm -hmm. the Freemasons and um, the Knights Templar. I mean, it really you know, if a person's into this kind of historical geekery like I am, I mean this is a great book. So thank you so much, John, for sharing the stories and coming on. Thank you. I, 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 really, I really enjoy it. I'm, I'm delighted that, that you enjoyed it, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. We super geeked out in that one, didn't we, my friends? <laughs> I did anyway. And you can demonstrate your learning by using the term ziggurat in conversation today. Bonus points. <laughs> but honestly, I think the whole conversation can be well summed up uh, in that section, you know, where I said to John, you know, incense, chanting, bread and blood taboos, what's the deal with that? And he said, it's not a matter of symbolism. These things work with the temple technology. I I love that as a concise explanation. Thanks so much to John for being on the show today. And I'd like to thank all my listeners living in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. I've always wanted to see the airport in Gander, Newfoundland, you know that, since even before it was made famous by the local residents and their hospitality during 9-11 and more recently in their newfound fame in the Broadway play, Come From Away. The airport there in Gander is a gem of mid-century modern design. It's been featured in many magazines. Someday I will make the 7,000-kilometer trip to your side of the country to see you. Now, some of you need to check your calendars because deposits are due April 1st to come on Quest with me during the full moon in June. Who's coming with us this year? Me, Ashley, Patricia, and more. You can now place your deposit online and learn all the details on my website under the Retreats tab. Go to carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.